0: This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell.
1: Hello, welcome to another Money & Markets podcast. At the moment, every week is a bumper week and this one is no exception. Joining me to canter through the plethora of market news is Danny Hewson.
0: Hi uh, Dan. Yeah, so many results, so little time. We have picked out just some of the ones we found interesting, including McDonald's, Exxon and Intel. There's
1: quite a bit of deal making going on at the moment and we'll be mulling over Tesco's acquisition of High Street station of Paper Chase and Bestway taking a stake in Sainsbury's.
0: Here is a treat for you. One of the most popular investors active today is on the show this week. Terry Smith is here to talk about Fundsmith Equity Fund and he's got some choice words to say about two of his holdings.
1: Leith Califf will also join us to talk about UK government plans to regulate the cryptoverse. We've also got fellow AJ Bell expert Rachel Vay to talk about some interesting news in the world of pensions. With so many of us having multiple retirement saving spots thanks to auto enrolment, the DWP is thinking of bringing back the concept of pot follows member.
0: Loads to pack in and there is plenty of good news around, which is quite nice, Dan, for a change to be talking about good news.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. It, it, you know, the, the stock market has been going up quite nicely. Lots of companies saying actually things are going all right. So, yeah, it's, it, it is refreshing, isn't it?
0: It is refreshing, although the FTSE 100 and the FTSE 250 had a bit of a wobble. Uh, We're recording this on Wednesday and uh, yesterday, Tuesday, um, we got, well, it's fair to say some really gloomy news from the International Monetary Fund. They do a forecast where they take a look at the world and the different countries and figure out what they expect from the economy. And it doesn't always get it right that is for sure. However, when the IMF speaks, people do pay attention. And this really caught people's imagination yesterday, because the IMF is expecting the UK's economy to shrink by more than had been expected to shrink by about 0.6% this year, which is quite an outlier when you consider that it's predicting that globally, the economy will pick up. So not going to be quite as bad as a lot of people had feared. But the headline, which was picked up by an awful lot of people, it was the reason that my phone kept ringing yesterday with people wanting to talk about it, is that despite all the sanctions currently placed on Russia, Russia's economy is expected to do far better than the UK economy over the next year. Dan, did that make your ears prick up?
1: Absolutely. I mean, we we knew the UK was not going to have the best of times, but that is quite an alarming fact, isn't
0: it? (laughs) It really is. And I was sort of having a dig into it, and although a lot of people were pointing out that the IMF quite often gets this wrong, particularly when it comes to the UK. It it possibly is on the money here because this is what an awful lot of market analysts have been predicting for the UK economy. It's sort of on the track to what the Bank of England has been predicting, although we will get an update from the Bank of England on Thursday when it announces its interest rate decision. But You know, the UK has got a very specific set of problems at the moment. It's being impacted particularly by the huge amount of gas that we use here in the UK to heat our homes. And of course, when gas prices go up, that just impacts inflation, which has been really awful for people's pockets over the last year. It is leveling out. It is beginning slowly to cool off, but still very much there. We also had the impact of the mini budget, which is still being felt. So, of course, we saw, you know, the pound sterling against the dollar fall to a record low and that then had a knock on effect so that food prices, things that were importing were more expensive. You've also now got a situation with mortgages, you know, over a million people expected to need to remortgage over the next year have been on ridiculously low interest rates below 2%. And are now looking at having to remortgage at above four, some cases around five percent. So I mean that is adding hundreds of pounds to people's mortgage payments, and all of that means that they've got less money to spend in the economy. And another issue, of course, we were celebrating, or at least talking about the fact that it's been three years since Brexit yesterday, and there was a bit of news which came out talking about the fact that our labour market is still really struggling, and there was a number put on it, 300,000 workers we are short post-Brexit because of the ending of free movement of labour. That came from a leading research uh, Group. So we had UK in a changing Europe and Centre for European Reform think tanks working on that. And I think the big one, which has been spoken about a lot, is that those trading arrangements, which were in place, and we were told post Brexit there would be an opportunity to do a lot more trade globally perhaps because of COVID, but for whatever reason, those trading arrangements to sort of replace what we have, they haven't been created. That's not to say they won't be, but clearly, you know, we are still very much at at the starting gate there. We've had the car sector warning that the UK doesn't have an industrial strategy we had the Chancellor, of course, coming out off the back of that um last week, saying, "Declinism, it's not right, it's wrong, it's been wrong before it's wrong now his He's very odd speech. Did you hear um Chancellor jeremy Hunt's speech, Dan
1: No, I didn't know,
0: really was... odd speech <laughs>
1: yeah yeah it, yeah, it sounds like I was, I was was I spared something that was a bit, a bit you know peculiar. So.
0: Well, he spent a long time not saying a great deal, but he did focus on the four E's. Did you hear about the four E's? Do you know what the four E's are? Please tell me. (laughs) You see, I've I've tantalised you there with the prospect of the four E's. Here we go. Enterprise, education, employment, and have a guess what the fourth one is. The economy. (laughs) (laughs) Everywhere. Everywhere. The fourth one was everywhere. I mean, I I kind of get it from a levelling up um, point of view, but it it was quite a strange set of, of goals that he was talking about to, you know, really lift the UK economy. But the key takeaway that most people got from that is taxes are very unlikely to be cut in the budget. And now there's that sort of Constant chatter and argument about whether or not the UK needs a budget for growth. And anyone remember the mini budget? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I think that the the, the UK economy, you
0: know, it's, it, it's the
1: expectations are low, and you know, I can understand why the IMF comes out with this sort of um, you know, quite gloomy outlook. But because actually, there, there's plenty of evidence to show that we're already in distress. Corporate insolvencies have reached the highest level since the aftermath of the great financial crisis. In 2022, there were 22,109 insolvencies, the highest figure since 2009 and up 57% from 2021. Now, part of the reason is because a lot of these businesses have had that are in trouble have had COVID-related support measures taken away. So they've either... You know, essentially had to forge their own path to recovery. Um, or, you know, the downside is if trading is not going well or finances are in poor shape, you know, this is, this is you know, make or break time really. Construction, retail, accommodation and food services sectors have been hardest hit. Um, and one of the problems there has been pressure from rising costs, staff shortages and weaker consumer demand. Now, you know, I'm based in London, and here it feels like the world is back to normal. Everything is busy. I know that is not the case across the country. There's lots of companies that are struggling with higher bills and they're having to you know pay these bills before money comes in for the goods and services that they sell now it's this working capital crunch that's often the cause of business failure and I think this is an area which um, you know lots of people are looking at now and you know perhaps if some of our listeners are you know run a small business themselves they may be feeling all these pressures and know exactly um, you know how hard it is for a lot of businesses out there at the moment.
0: It's interesting that you're talking from a London perspective. I'm obviously based in the North and things are a bit different here. And it's funny because I remember uh, working um, uh, as a reporter for the BBC in the wake of the financial crisis and the UK had come out of recession. But when I would go and and do the, the Vox Pops out on the street asking people how they were feeling about the economy, people were saying, we still feel like we're in recession. And certainly, In some parts of the north, things are quiet. Some of the major cities are still bustling. So Manchester, Leeds, still bustling. But here in Huddersfield, where I am, very quiet indeed. And I know, you know, a few years ago, there was an awful lot of talk about zombie companies operating. The ones that were just managing to keep ticking over because interest rates on that, all of that debt that they had was so low. And now, you know, that is going to be a huge shock to the system for a lot of those companies. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the fact that they may no longer be able to continue to operate. Now, just in terms of, you know, how <laughs> High Street and um, the amount of of trade that's going on the High Street and the expenses to keep things going. Uh, One business that has failed again is Paper Chase. Uh, It collapsed a couple of years ago. It was bought out of administration. It was then sold again to a private investment company in 2021 and finally fell into administration again on Tuesday before being rescued very quickly by Tesco. But, and this is an important but, because it's not the whole kit and caboodle which has been taken on by Tesco. It is just the brand. So the high street stores will disappear. And with them, it looks like around 800 jobs as well. Now, at the time when Tesco was making this acquisition. And, you know, let's be honest, Paper Chase is a big brand. It is the kind of brand which will get people into Tesco stores. If you want a nice card and you're thinking, where am I going to go? You might go to Tesco because you want a Paper Chase card. So, it strategically, it's, it's a good move for Tesco because they're not going to have to pay for the stores. They just need to find a bit of room on their own store shelves. But it's got issues of its own because this announcement came on the day that it announced it was cutting 2,000, just under 2,000 of its own jobs. It's getting rid of the last of the hot deli counters. though Those staff will be reassigned. It's closing some of the pharmacies. And the big move is to move many overnight roles to daytime hours to save cash. This sort of change is happening in in a lot of businesses at the moment as they try and sort of cut costs to take themselves forwards. And and another thing that Tesco have done is that they're changing, cutting a, a huge number of team manager positions. So instead... Their role be t- will be taken on by lesser-paid team leaders. So, it, effectively, it's just a way to to try and deal with high costs, which are impacting a lot of businesses.
1: I thought the the acquisition of the um, the brand of paper chase is slightly unusual for Tesco. The cards are quite expensive, and that goes against sort of Tesco's value proposition. If you go to a paper chase store, they've got lots of other things like um, notebooks and and you know, fancy mugs and stuff. And it just doesn't seem like the sort of thing you'd see in a Tesco store anymore. These are things that they've got rid of because they want to just have more space for sort of the, the everyday essentials. But um, but yeah, I mean, I guess the timing of um, you know, the announcement coinciding with sort of cutbacks elsewhere in the business is you know unfortunate, but. You know, when when you've got a, a, a business that's going through administration, they try and do a pre-pack deal. You know, you, you can't wait. You got to you know, you've got to do the deal there and then and coming out. But I mean, it's quite interesting. You know, obviously that's going on in the supermarket ses- sector for um, for Tesco. We've also got some news on Sainsbury's as well, where um, Bestway, the UK's largest independent cash and carry business, has come in and taken a stake. Now it bought. of Sainsbury's last week. Now, just as we're recording this podcast, it's increased its stake to 4.47%. And it's basically come out and said, you know, anyone who owns these shares and would like to sell them to us, we'll have them. However, we're not going to make a takeover bid at the moment, so um, it's it's a very peculiar situation. Normally, you'd you'd get someone they would if they want to build a strategic stake, they just do it quietly, um, and you can see the announcements to the stock market if they when they go over three percent. You don't ever get this sort of thing saying, you know, here's our no, here's our phone number, give us a call. Um, <laughs> so, whilst it says they only want to do it for investment purposes now, I think longer term. What they want to do is to own a much bigger slice of the business, and therefore they can do a, a partnership deal. If you think back when Tesco bought Booker, another sort of yeah. wholesale cash and carry business, so Tesco said, "Well, you know, if we own Booker, we we will benefit um, because we're going to reach a new market. So Booker's really you know, supplying things like restaurants and cafes and stuff. So all these little, sort of small businesses that Tesco can now reach." Booker benefited because they can from Tesco's huge buying power. So you park the two businesses together, and it's actually been a really good acquisition. So the flip side here is you've now got the you know best ways the cash and carry side of thing. Um, you know, imagine if if it wanted to buy Sainsbury's, it, 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 it's exactly the same sort of strategic rationale. But if they don't necessarily, if it doesn't make a takeover bid. They can still work closely together, and I'm and I'm sure what they'll do is probably push for a seat on the board of directors, try and uh, have some influence over strategy. But yeah, I think it's a really interesting deal. Also, it's kind of come out of the blue, really. Um, You know, I don't think anyone was certainly there's no chatter about it. But you know, there's there's one thing to to think about here: if it was to make a takeover deal. There's two other parties it's got to sort of um, sweet talk into selling their stakes, and that's one's the Qatar Investment Authority, which owns 14.3% of Sainsbury's, and uh, Visa Equity Investment owns just over 10%. So, yeah, ironically, a colleague of mine said to me that that you know, Sainsbury's now has more stakes in it than Dracula, which I thought was a nice little one. <laughs>
0: I like that line. Um, th- there's an awful lot of uh, movement going on at the moment, and we're not going to talk about it a lot in this podcast, but I just wanted to draw it t- to people's attention if they weren't aware because Fraser's group, of course, uh, which has been acting a bit like it's got you know the upper hand in a game of Monopoly, it's taken a stake in the big Manchester shopping giant N. Brown, um, 17% now. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. And, and what you were saying about companies, Companies working together, even if it's not a full takeover, that could be very well the thing which happens with Fraser's Group and N-Brown. Um, it's been a hugely busy week when it comes to earnings updates, uh, particularly uh, the S&P 500 companies reporting. Um, I saw over 100 this week alone, uh, we're not, you'll be glad to know, going to go through all of them. We decided just to pick out a few that had caught our eye. And I'm going to start with the golden arches. And I- I'm going to admit that I did, because the kids are um, off school today because of the strike, um, I was so busy that I did actually make a quick trip down to McDonald's to get them lunch. So, you know, this is the kind of healthy lunch that I'm dishing up for my kids anyway. <laughs> I'm possibly one of those people which have helped contribute to McDonald's um, doing incredibly well. Um, They have said that inflationary headwinds are still going to be an issue over the coming year, and it's possibly that that investors were very much grabbing onto because shares were down following the um, earnings results that McDonald's posted. But it was just really interesting to see where they were making their money and the fact that they were talking about how people were trading down. They were saying that people with lower incomes were were coming in more, ordering less, but coming back more often. And despite the fact that they have put prices up this year, They're still at such a value end of the market that they are capturing those sort of inflation weary consumers. And it was a great term I saw reported, inflation weary, because I I know so many of us are absolutely feeling pig sick of prices just going up and up and up. And every time you go to the supermarket, your basket is costing more. Uh, At least now when you go and fill up your car, it's costing a little bit less. But McDonald's clearly has been hugely impacted by that, and it's still growing. It's setting aside quite a lot of cash to open two thousand, almost two thousand more restaurants over the next year, four hundred in the United States. And something which I did pick up on, which is really interesting, because it did spend an awful lot of money supporting its franchises um, during COVID, and it has said that it is going to have to put in a substantial amount of cash supporting some of its franchises in europe because of high energy costs and of course you know some businesses have had a bit of business support for their energy costs other businesses haven't had that support and and here in the uk we know that that energy support is going to come to an end so there are a lot of question marks about what happens to to high energy use businesses. And and I imagine that a McDonald's does use quite a lot of business when you consider how much is fried. Um, And they were also mentioning about the fact that the high um, value of the dollar had affected global sales and that actually net sales were down if you actually factored in currency. But it's just McDonald's is seen as one of those bellwethers and I think the fact that there are still comments about inflation and about how that is going to impact the consumer that will, will very much keep this debate alive in people's minds over the next year.
1: Now, at the start of the show, you said that there was lots of good news and I, and I agree there's lots of good news. And then we, I sort of realised we've been talking pretty much n- negative stuff ever since. But <laughs> Exxon, yeah, ExxonMobil... Is like an absolute prime example of a company that is, you know, milking it basically. Um, It made a record profit of fifty five point seven billion dollars last year. Um, You know, you could see that it's it's been a beneficiary of um, the oil prices rocketing after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, You know, this is it's it's it's, it's sort of even outraged the White House uh, when these figures came out. So a White House spokesperson said it was outrageous that Exxon had posted a new record for Western oil company um, profits after the American people were forced to pay such high prices at the pump amidst Putin's invasion. Um, And then they sort of went on to say that, you know, these earnings reports make it clear that oil companies got everything they need, record profits, lots of unused but approved permits to increase production, but instead they're plowing those profits into padding the pockets of executives and shareholders. They don't hold back, do they? (laughs) (laughs) That's a rant
0: and a half, isn't it? Wow, that's
1: really good. Yeah, so, you know, the boss of Exxon sort of replies saying that White House needed to get its facts straight, saying that, um, you know, ExxonMobil... Continued to spend money on projects despite pressure from investors and um, others to shift investments to renewable energy. But you know, it, it's interesting. So obviously, it, ma- it made a stack of money, but actually, the fourth quarter profit figures were below expectations, um, and it also took a charge of one point three billion dollars related to windfall taxes in Europe. So um, you know, I, I guess a, a mixture of good and bad news there. But it just goes to show that you know. Um, you know for, for every crisis that there, there always seems to be some sort of winner and, and even in the inflation crisis mcdonald's is a winner because like you say people trading down from so sort of perhaps um you know f- food on the go sort of sit down restaurants maybe and um you know I, I guess like your pizza restaurants to have something that that is the cheapest price point you can imagine um, but you know, if, we, if we just go through one more stock um based on what's been reported recently Had to talk about Intel. The shares in this company plummeted last week after it flagged a collapse in PC sales and falling market share in its server chip division, which was much worse than analysts have forecast. So what's been happening here is that you've got total worldwide semiconductor sales hit nearly $530 billion in 2021. Customers are rushing to stock up after supplies were um, dropped in response to COVID. But the shortfall in chips has been reduced since then at the same time as supply chain bottlenecks of ease. And so what's actually happened is that customers are cutting future orders. They've already got enough stock to work with. And of course, that's sending chip prices tumbling. So Intel is in this quite difficult situation where um, it was doing very well and now it's not at all. But most tech companies have actually just been sort of looking at their cost structure and saying, "Okay, we're going to announce really com- big company-wide job cuts to try and save some money." Intel's not doing that. Instead, it's sort of basically saying to managers and senior staff that, "Sorry, you're going to have to take a pay cut uh, while we try and weather through this storm," which I find very strange because semiconductor industry is very cyclical, has good times and bad times, all and this just just like it goes up and down in cycles, swings in demand. To suddenly say to staff, you've got to take uh, you know a little bit less money home. It seems, I don't know, it, it, this isn't unusual for the business. It's just a, a, one of its sort of um, tougher periods to go through. But yeah, you know, very, very, very strange situation here. And um, you know, I guess it's not n- not good if you work for for Intel, and and also not very good for if you've been a shareholder. for how the the short share prices reacted.
0: And it's interesting you talk about the sort of good news, bad news dynamic, because the one thing that I have noticed about this particular set of results is that one person's good news is another person's bad news. And you can see something which, on the face of it, looks like it's great, profits up, you know, beating expectations. And yet shareholders don't like it. Maybe they've seen something in the outlook which is making them really nervous. Maybe it's not quite met expectations. But it has been a real sort of mix. And I think that you can find some good news in, in pretty much every um, earnings report that we've had. And if you dig deep enough, you can also find some bad news because, you know, we are marching towards a global recession. Although with the IMF figure suggesting maybe it won't be as bad as had be expected or maybe it won't happen at all. So it's that sort of unknown, I think, which is making investors a little nervous. Um, We're recording this Wednesday lunchtime. We've got a whole load of big tech names reporting in the next couple of days. We've got a little issue of interest rate decisions from the Fed and the Bank of England. Laura and I are going to discuss the implications next week. And don't forget, if you are still waiting to hear Terry Smith, he is coming up.
1: Now the cryptoverse has been described as the wild west and the recent collapse of some pretty big names like FTX and Terra Luna have left some investors out of pocket to the tune of billions. Well the UK government has decided it's time to regulate the sector and it's launched a consultation on some newly published proposals. So who else will we get to talk about this but A.J. Bell's head of investment analysis and self-proclaimed
2: Bitcoin badger, late Caller? <laughs> some of it has been attributed to me as well. That, that, that nickname has stuck. Certain members of the team seem to like it.
0: <laughs> I like it. It suits you. Yes, yeah,
2: so it's mainly you actually, Danny. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we've had some a consultation launched by the Treasury um, surrounding sort of cryptocurrencies. So um, it's quite a, see- a sweeping series of, of proposals, which is just basically beefing up um, the rules that are applying to a wide range of crypto activities. And, and the broad approach seems basically to be to try and um, replicate and sort of adjust some of the uh, regulations that already apply to kind of more tr- traditional mainstream assets. Um, so the challenge with that, of course, is that cryptos are pretty, a pretty new, it's a pretty complex and it's pretty evolving um, a bit of the market. You know, if you think about the stock market, all the regulation that's, that's grown up around that, that's had hundreds of years to, 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 to develop. You know, the first rule book for the London Stock Exchange uh, was, was created in 1812. So it's been something that, you know, has happened, you know, Bit by bit, and and even even despite that, you still had you know big scandals like en- Enron, Equitable Life, and, and layman's. And if you just consider that kind of crypto is something really kind of in terms of trading has really sort of just sprung up really in the last five years. Even though cryptocurrencies have been around for probably fifteen years or so, two thousand eight, I think it was the first uh, the first kind of Bitcoin protocol. Um, so. You know, the regulators are really playing catch up with a very fast, um, a fast evolving space. And, and the backdrop to this is, is of course, the, the FTX scandal. So, you know, as you said, Dan, people are losing huge amounts um, of money. And so it's natural that regulators not just here but across the globe are going to take a much a much closer look um, at, at this area. You know, regulation, the, the, what, what's being proposed, it's not going to totally eliminate risk. Um, that you know, regulatory risk that their investors are are exposed to. Um, you know, there are there is going to still be sort of potential, I guess, for uh, for people to to be misled or, or or taken for a ride. You know, we have scamming activity in all sorts of areas of the market. Um, and of course, there's still a, there's still always the price risk with, with cryptocurrency, which is you know, if you're buying it, it's hugely volatile. So don't put in any money that you're not willing to lose in its entirety.
1: Lacey, have you got any idea? How long sort of these proposals will, will take to go through, and, and when we might actually see some changes?
2: Well, um, not not a, not a, de- a definitive date. No, I mean in terms of um, what's what's being proposed uh, today, um, the 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 Treasury's consulting on them. That cons- consultation closes at the end of April. The Treasury's then got to. Um, read those consultation responses and come back with its own response uh, and then it's going to set secondary leg- legislation. The FCA uh, will have to set down rules. So um, it's, it's gonna it's gonna take a while. Um, you know if I had to guess I'd suggest that we might we might see some rules towards the end of this year maybe, Maybe the beginning of next year, but but you know, having said that, you know, the FCA consulted on um, the rules for open-ended property funds in 2020, and we're still waiting for some outcome from that. So, um, you know, it's a bit of you know, how long is a piece of string?
0: Now, one of the appeals of cryptocurrency for a lot of people was that it was independent of traditional finance networks. So, is this going to be a bit of a bun fight? How do you think it's going to go down with investors?
2: Yeah, I think I think perhaps that that is something that has changed. I, I mean, I get the impression that that was, anecdotally speaking, kind of very true of the early crypto adopters. That was, that's what it was all about. But you know, it's become such a sort of every every person sport crypto now. There's so some, you know, something like over two million people hold crypto that I don't think all of them are, are doing it simply because they're anti-establishment. I think quite a lot of them are doing it for financial gain, and they see it either they see the the vast sort of um, you know, price increases that have happened in the past, or they think that this is something digital, and I'd like a, a bit of a, uh, a bit of exposure to to a digital future. Um, so I, I think there probably is a hardcore that will will kind of rile against regulation. Um, but um, you know, I think actually what FTX shows us is you know the, the benefits of regulation. Really, um, is that if you if if you kind of leave. Um, you know, kind of markets where you've got huge, huge numbers of people participating them just to their own devices, then you're really leaving the back door open to, to kind of poor governance, fraudulent activity and scam, scam activity.
0: I've also got to ask, because we were talking earlier about um, the IMF's warning about the UK economy, and the government clearly trying to attract uh, a lot of what it calls next generation industry, and it seems it might hope that here it could actually tempt some cryptocurrencies, crypto companies to set up in the UK rather than offshore.
2: Yes, so I think the government is keeping that door open. Um, clearly, they want to, to encourage um, innovation. Um, I think there is a, um, a debate to be had about whether cryptocurrency innovation is particularly useful for anyone but um that's that's perhaps a separate issue but i think quite sensibly i think the government is um is kind of keeping a a chip on the table just in case um you know crypto really does develop into into something big um because it's i mean you know it's a big it's a big industry but in terms of kind of the global economy it's a very small bit at the moment so um it's not something where you know i think kind of you know it's going to drive um GDP growth, for instance, in, in, in any meaningful way for, for for a long time. And I mean I guess in terms of what's being proposed, I mean regulation probably in the short term isn't 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 necessarily encouraging for businesses. If you ask businesses kind of whether they want more regulation, by and large they say no because it increased costs for them. But I think the longer term view is that you know what that regulation should hopefully create is uh, less chance of things like FTX happening um, and greater investor confidence, which actually in our long term view should be more positive um, for, you know, for for the economy, for consumers and for, for members of the
0: crypto industry as well. Thank you so much, Leith. OK, away from crypto, going on to pensions. And we're joined this week by HL's Head of Policy Development, Rachel Vay. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Danny. So a couple of things to sort of canter through, and let's start with the DWP's
3: annual review into auto-enrolment triggers. Has anything changed? Well, the short answer is no. Now, this is about making sure that we're encouraging the right people into saving in a pension. So there are two key elements to look at. The first one is how much do you have to earn before you're going to be automatically enrolled by your employer into a pension? And um, this is currently £10,000. The DWP isn't going to change that. And I think that makes sense. People's earnings in the UK, that they're, they're generally rising. So more and more people are going to be earning above £10,000. So what that means is that more and people are going to be drawn into the automatic enrolment net and will start saving for their future. The other key element is the band of earnings you pay contributions on. And this is set between 6,240 and 50,270. So it's aligned with national insurance um, thresholds. And because these haven't increased, the government has decided to keep the band of earnings limits exactly the same. But what this means is that as earnings generally increase, People who are earning um, 50000 or just over 50000 will find that their earnings are stretching away from that 50270 limit. And so a lower proportion of their total income is going to be covered by that band of earnings. And if that's the case, then they're going to lose out on paying contributions on that amount, and they'll lose out on employer contributions and pensions tax relief as well. So I suppose... That begs the question, should anything have changed? Well, it would have been good to see this upper limit raised a little bit more just to make sure that people still maintained um, an element of saving on that uh, part of their salary. But ideally, we would have liked to see bigger changes for automatic enrolment. The government's already committed to lowering the automatic enrolment age, uh, so it's going to go down from 22 down to 18 and has also promised to get rid of the lower band of earnings, that's £6,240. Now, if it did that, it means that people could receive pension contributions on the whole of their salary, or at least from the first pound upwards. But although the government's committed to doing this, it hasn't said exactly when it's going to bring these changes in. And there's people out there who are struggling nowadays to meet their day-to-day living costs So they really need these changes to be brought in as soon as they can, so they can get help to save as well for their future. Now,
1: Rachel, I I know the DWP has been looking into the issue of lost pension pots, and I think you were talking in the region of £27 billion. So I think one of the things that they've been talking about is reviving a scheme where the pot follows member. So could you perhaps explain what that is and, and why is so much cash getting lost?
3: Well, £27 billion is a a really big figure, isn't it, Dan? Um, (laughs) So lots of pots, um, the loss of pots is is a really growing problem in pensions. And it's because people don't usually stay in the same job for their whole life. So somebody could have, say, 11 different employers during their career, and they build up a retirement pot with each employer. But these pension pots are going to get scattered all over the place. And this causes some challenges. That's both for the member, because the member's trying to manage multiple small parts, they're trying to keep on top of them, make sure they're all doing well, that they're performing right. And sometimes people just completely lose track of their pension pot. But it's also a problem for the providers, because smaller parts can be costly to administer. And often when members don't tell providers when they've moved house or they've changed their email address, so they're just not engaging with the provider or their pension anymore. So bringing together all of these pots into one place, it makes a lot of sense for everybody. The problem is that now at the moment, it's left up to the member to say, I want to do this. I want to bring my pensions together. So the member has to take that action. But that also means that they've got to know how many pension pots they've got and exactly where all those pension pots are. So the government is keen to investigate if there's any way that this can happen automatically. And it's revived two ideas to see if it could work in practice. One of them is to create a clearinghouse to automatically consolidate pots together. And the other one is for an individual's previous pension to automatically be transferred to their new pension plan when they start a new employment. So that's the pot follows member idea.
1: Do you think there's any issues with these automatic consolidation ideas?
3: Yes, there are a few. They're definitely not without challenges. What it means is that you're automatically moving someone's pension. Um, And so what happens, for example, if they are automatically moved from a low charging scheme into a higher charging scheme, or they're moved into a pension scheme where the investment performance is poor or not as good, or they were moved into a default investment, which didn't match either their environmental or their social beliefs? So there are a few issues around that. There are also some pension plans out there with valuable guarantees and which could get lost on transfer and risk getting lost on transfer. So that's a problem. So if the government really wants to do anything about this particular problem, it's going to have to start at the beginning again and address this issue of um, automatic transfers for small pots to really see if it can get this idea off the ground.
0: Now, Rachel, before we let you go, lots of people we know are accessing their pensions at the moment, some for the first time. That means lots of people paying tax on this cash and in quite a lot of cases being overcharged. So really briefly, what's going on and what can people do if they think they have been overcharged?
3: Okay, Daniel, I'll try and keep this brief. So when somebody first takes out um, an ad hoc lump sum from their drawdown pot or they cash it in totally... If the provider doesn't have a tax code for them, then the provider's got to tax the payment on an emergency tax basis, and this means that the individual is going to pay is going to have more tax deducted from the payment than they really owe. Now, people can of course always get their tax back. Um, one of the ways to do that is to fill in a form and send it to HMRC. The latest stats from HMRC show that in the final three months of 2022. A staggering £45 million was repaid to people who did exactly that, who filled in the forms. And I think that just shows you how uh, widespread this problem is. But if you didn't fill in a form, don't despair. You can still get your money back. If you're taking a steady stream of income from Drawdown, HMRC is going to automatically adjust your tax code. But if it's a one off payment for for example, you cashed in the whole of the drawdown pot because it was just a small amount, then either you fill in a form or HMRC will put you back in the correct position at the end of the year. Filling in a form is probably going to be preferable because simply you're going to get your money back quicker.
1: Well, Rachel, thank you ever so much for talking through those really important issues with pensions.
3: Thanks.
0: Now, while we're talking about pensions, here's a nice segue because I'm going to talk about the announcement that one of the UK's most well respected CEOs is. Retiring. Sir Nigel Wilson has been at the helm of legal and general for almost 10 years. Um, I think it's fair to say that it took a little while for the city to warm up to him. He is a straight talking northerner, and I've had the good fortune of being able to um, have a, a chat with him myself on a couple of occasions. And the one thing that always struck me about Sir Nigel was his absolutely love. Of UK PLC. He's helped the company really shift focus and it is now a massive investor in UK PLC. Lots of infrastructure spend. He's a huge supporter of levelling up. He's obviously from the North East and uh, I know he loves nothing better than to watch uh, Newcastle United uh, on a weekend. Um, he's not a fan of HS2 He's been pretty outspoken on that. He has agreed that the insurance sector should evolve. And I think his time at the helm of LNG has really sort of demonstrated how the insurance sector can use its money, its investments, really, to create growth for the UK. And I know it's something that the government has really been pushing um, at the door of and trying to change some of the rules and regulations around where pension money is invested. And of course, as we're talking about the need for UK growth and those sort of gloomy predictions from the IMF, those big infrastructure projects, particularly when it comes to energy they are going to be the things that really powers through the country, and it, it, I think you know the mark of, of a boss who is well respected by city and investors when the announcement comes that someone is retiring and shares fall and that is exactly what happened upon this announcement he's not going to disappear immediately he's staying on until obviously his successor can be appointed but uh, yeah i think he's going to be quite a big loss for lng because he's been such a a huge figure within that business, it's it's not been the case with all the comings and goings this week that uh, people have been sad to see people go.
1: No, we've got also in the insurance sector that Penny James is leaving as the chief executive direct line. Now she's stepping down after a pretty disastrous period for the company. There's been a rise in claims for subsidence from hot summer, rising claims for burst pipes from a cold spell this winter. Um, The cost of fixing things like cars after accidents, that's going up. Uh, The company had to cancel half of a a hundred million share buyback. Then the dividend got canceled. You know, everything has been piling up. And so poor old Penny has probably come under um, considerable pressure from, I guess, the big investors in, in direct line um, and probably the board of directors saying, you know, I think it's probably time we got someone in new to try and fix all these problems. You know, why wasn't this seen um, in advance? We've talked about direct line previously on the podcast uh, about stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, that was, I guess that's not, not uh, unexpected. But, you know, equally, we've got um, another interesting appointment here on the flip side, we, we already knew that Alan Joke was leaving Unilever, um, but we weren't sure who was going to be replacing him. But now we know it's Hein Schumacher. He's currently head of a Dutch dairy cooperative. Now, he looks like a turnaround man, judging by his CV, and he certainly walks into a job after a period where Unilever has been pushing up prices, but it's not been increasing sales volumes. And there's been lots and lots of um, sort of criticism about its strategy in recent years. Now, one person who's very outspoken about the company is Terry Smith, manager of the Fundsmith Equity Fund. Now, I've been doing some filming with him, uh, and we'll shortly be publishing a series of video interviews where he discusses the fund his portfolio and the lessons he's learnt through his career. But as a teaser, before those videos come out, we're going to publish just some snippets from the interview, um, starting with Terry Smith's thoughts on what the new Unilever CEO should do.
0: It's worth noting that Dan talked to Terry just before Unilever announced that Hein Schumacher had the top job, hence why he's talking in broad terms. Let's hear what he had to say.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I sort of would say my criticism isn't of the business. And that's probably a clue to it because and the business is pretty good business actually i mean we're talking about a business which historically has produced returns on capital in the high teens to low 20s and is now in the low uh, low teens basically um and you could measure growth for this business if you can only count to three uh, i mean people get terribly excited oh well, look at the last year of the growth yeah it was all price led but you're percent right which is not very healthy, right and uh, no volume growth so I'm talking about genuine organic growth above three percent as an ex- it's disappeared from this business. I hope the new chief executive will stop the process of paying, uh, you know, what Warren Buffett characterizes as gin rummy uh, management. You know, you've got your set of cards and you keep discarding one and picking up a new one. So, oh, let's get out of uh, spreads, which they have. Let's get out of tea, which they have. And let's try and buy the Glaxo uh, Smith uh over-the-counter healthcare product business. By the way, outside their core franchise uh, expertise, right? No, stop it. I think the first thing you should do is make each of the business segments that you have. So basically food, uh, household uh, cleaning products, uh, well-being and beauty products, and ice cream. Why do you make each of those? Benchmark them against your competition and make them the best that you can make them in terms of their uh, organic sales growth, their, uh, their profitability and their returns on capital. Let's get it all working properly first. And then have a rethink about whether we want to make any changes. Make it the best of the Unilever it is. If we, uh, you know, we as a bunch of investors wanted to own the Glaxo, Smith um, & healthcare uh, over the counter, we can go buy the shares. We don't need you to buy them. And pay, by the way, a massive premium to the market price. Right? We can buy them ourselves. We'd like you to take what we already know to be Unilever and make it the best that it can be within what it is. And, um, and take that. Other things I'd like them to do, stop coming up with plans uh, about uh, uh, that they give they fancy names for about uh, their, their matrix or non-matrix management system and they're structuring their portfolio. Stop all of that. Stop blaming, blaming the previous CEOs for anything. You know, uh, that's one of the great things I think about very good companies is they have seamless changes of management. In which they don't go around saying that the last guy did it all wrong. <laughs> yeah, those would be really good things, I think. For the for, and not, I think if they do that, the business it's not the problem. Isn't with the business?
0: Terry certainly didn't hold back with those comments on Unilever, as another teaser for the videos that we're about to publish, featuring Dan and Terry. Let's have a listen to what the fundsmith manager has to say about one of his more controversial holdings.
1: The one stock that stands out for me in the Fundsmith equity portfolio is Meta Platforms, which owns Facebook. A lot of people would argue that social media network has become less popular, and that founder Mark Zuckerberg has got some crazy ideas. So, Terry, why do you still own this stock?
4: Yeah, let me cover off one point just before I tell you why I'm sticking with it. um The uh, yeah, people say it's becoming less popular. I bet the people who are telling you that less popular uh, are, are probably located in uh, in London than the home counties. I mean. Um, how do they think the popularity is going in Indonesia at the moment? What's we'll your view on that, I wonder? I mean, you know, we all kind of sort of work from our own anecdotal uh, experience in life, it's inevitable. But well, the fact of the matter is, just to cover that point off of me, this has got 1.8 billion daily users. And at least as we speak, uh, we've had no evidence that number of daily users is falling. Um, i mean outside outside of china this is the go-to uh, uh social network and communications platform it also has 12 and this is a rather more important point so that 1.8 billion daily users give it access to 12 million businesses that advertise of course that's where the revenue is made um, look the uh if we look at this business we've got a business that's um uh, got a very strong position in digital online advertising basically that that user base gives it a very strong position in that. There are question marks about that. The question marks are others are entering the space, obviously. Uh, so we've now got quite significant uh, ad- online advertising business of things like Amazon, um, Apple, uh, Adobe, etc., coming into play there. So it's not in a, a duopoly anymore with Google stroke alphabet. Uh, we're going to discover, or we are discovering already, that digital advertising is just like advertising. It's cyclical. So there's going to be a cycle out there. Um, it's also got various regulatory problems and um, the regulatory problems in terms of breaking up the business, which we see quite a lot of don't bother me too much at all, because the history of breakups of businesses by the competition authorities in America are that they just create value. And that uh, if you look back through history, the component parts, uh, which, by the way, would be freed of the domination of Mr. Zuckerberg, which you refer to, uh, might be considerably more valuable than the, than the current uh, combination uh, is. The, the the attempt to regulate advertising worries me quite a bit. Uh that's that's true. And um, then we've got the spending on the so-called metaverse. Um without that spending on the metaverse, I would be pretty relaxed, uh, you know, considering everything that's in here about this business, because we probably would own this digital advertising business on a single figure PE, Right. That's pretty darn cheap. But we have got this big spending on the metaverse, and of course. We don't really know exactly what it is, and we certainly don't know whether or not uh, Meta will be the, one of the winners in it. But I think it's probably slightly more predictable than most people think, because we think about it. and We think, oh, well, what is it and how does it work? And so on." and um, we kind of take our lead in thinking about that, not from us sitting there thinking anecdotally, like some of the people maybe you talk to you think anecdotally about whether Facebook is popular, which I think, or are other people interested in this? And what do they say about it? So we talk to people like Microsoft and like Apple um, about the whole situation. We talk to people like L'Oreal, who are big users of digital uh, uh, fulfillment and advertising. So metaverse. um, Out of talking to them, I'm pretty well convinced that something real is going to emerge here. It's just difficult for us to envisage exactly what it is because it doesn't currently exist. But you only have to go back not 10 years and you have people who are Pretty knowledgeable, um, poo-pooing the concept of the cloud. Larry Ellison was was dismissive about the cloud. Uh, mm-hmm. If you go back, not not a decade, basically. Oops. As a result, Oracle is now num- yeah, number four in a four in a two-horse race or something like that. It's like, and uh, with the metaverse, you know, I don't know exactly what we're describing until I see it. But I do think that it's going to emerge, and that a number of people like the L'Oreal's of this world and the Hermes and the Mages will have their, their marketing through it. And probably you and I will be having a meeting in which we feel far more like we're in the same room in the future doing it. Um, and so I don't think it's quite the shot in the dark that people think. So we've got the digital advertising business. and with some problems around it, for cyclicality, breakthrough, et cetera, um, on probably a single figure PE. And it's other thing, which I am troubled about, I'm not pretending I'm not, because I don't truly understand it. That's not really within our normal mantra. But I'm neither or am I in the, well, I just think it's a complete waste of money. I think if I was looking for a single event to get us from the point of, well, it's all a bit of a mystery and they're spending a lot of money on it. We don't know how it works, To Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? It will be the first person to issue, sell uh, some glasses that actually start to deploy what this is. And I suspect that's going to be Apple. Mm. And then I think we'll actually begin to understand. Now, of course, that still doesn't mean that Meta is going to be the winner or a winner in it. I think there are still levels of uncertainty in here, which, frankly, I don't like.
2: Yeah. I mean, in, in your
1: latest investor letter, you say there might be a silver lining from more difficult economic conditions because some of your portfolio companies might stop spending on non-core businesses. I think some, some investors would say that a company that doesn't spend on innovation might soon become stale. So where do you draw the line between innovation and perhaps just wacky blue sky thinking?
4: Well I mean there's a couple of obvious uh, things to say about it. One is I think for innovation to work uh, and that is to say deliver value for us as investors it almost always has to be within an existing strong core business franchise. Right, People who spend within their existing business to develop things usually do pretty darn well, basically, because they've already got the knowledge, the distribution and so on to accomplish that, that and, and deliver great returns to us out of their business. So, you know, when, uh, um, you know, Reckit Bank is to develop Sillip Bank, which is a, a famous one. Yeah. I mean, guess what? It was a wild success. When uh, Nestle went from Nescafe to Nespresso, I mean, it's a case study, basically. Right. I mean, these, these are great return businesses that they've developed. On the other hand when people try to do things outside their core business <laughs> guess what it doesn't work very well so you know if we take fast moving consumer goods companies like Procter and Gamble like Unilever which are big in uh, household cleaning products and personal care products they go well, it's only a short step outside that into beauty isn't it you know um, hmm. no it's not it's a, it's like Neil Armstrong's giant leap for mankind actually <laughs> you know <laughs> Dr. and Gamble very wisely worked out that they couldn't do this. That you they, they and and sold all of their beauty businesses to Coty for whom it was, by the way, disastrous. <laughs> and um, our friends at Unilever, who I've recently, as you know, written about again, um, have tried getting into things like beauty and male grooming, and it's been disastrous. Their Carver acquisition in uh, in career has clearly been. Very, very bad indeed. Um, and their their acquisition of Dollar Shape Club has basically been buried in an unmarked grave. I mean, it, these are not businesses that they have an existing core franchising. And if we go back into the tech sector, which is where I basically did it, you get things like um, Alphabet or Google, as it was. They've got a great search and um, and online advertising business. Yeah. Um, but name one of their other bets, because that's what the name comes, alphabet, the name of it is the other bet. Name one of their other bets that's produced something. Hmm? Um, yeah, and uh, yeah. autonomous cars, which they've spent fantastic sums of money on, people like VW Audi have given up on, right? <laughs> <laughs> there might be a clue there, right? Um, And of course, not the ultimate acid acid test of an innovation is does it produce profits and returns? And that's if it doesn't, then we're wasting our time. But I would say the investment within an existing core franchise, I can think of the odd example of somebody who's had success outside their core franchise. But even then, it's usually temporary. Um, Nokia went from being a forest products company to being uh, the leading mobile handset company in the world to a mega disaster, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's pretty even then it was pretty temporary, you know?
0: Now, make sure you keep visiting the videos section on the AJ Bell website or AJ Bell's channel on YouTube as we're going to publish the full conversation with Terry Smith very soon. Next week, Laura and I will be discussing the implication of this week's anticipated rate hikes. Plus, Tom Selby will be here with Pensions Corner. And Dan, you've been chatting to the crew at Round Hill Music. So do make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your pods and you won't miss an episode.
1: As always, we'd love it you get in touch and tell us what you'd like to hear on the podcast. Is there anyone you would like us to interview? Uh, Our email address is podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Please do let us know what you want. And of course, if you've got any questions for Tom Selby on retirement or pensions, let us know. Until then, we'll catch you next time. And thank you for listening.
0: Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes.